Hello, this is Rob Carmichael with Mainly Matters and another segment on business and leadership. My guest today is Jim Boothby, the superintendent of RSU 25 schools in the uh, areas of Bucksport, Orland, Prospect, and Verona. Jim has been in the education field for over 32 years and has announced his intention to retire at the end of the school year in June of 24. So it's a great opportunity to touch base with Jim as he embarks on his last year uh, with the school system and and talk a little bit about, uh, a lot about uh, educational leadership, but also Jim has a, an interesting background before he got into into education. He's in the business field, and I've, I've talked to Jim over the years, and, and I know he, he takes a little of that uh, that business sense into how he's been a leader in uh, the education area. So uh, welcome, Jim. Great to have you. Thanks. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Well, let's talk. Let's start out just kind of uh, talking a little bit about your background. Uh, I see you, you've got a uh, you've got your bachelor of science from UMaine and in, in uh, masters in educational leadership from UMaine, and then your certificate of advanced study in educational leadership. And as I understand it, for our, our listeners, that is a requirement to be in the uh, administration or superintendent. Is that correct? That is correct. And you you look at that. It's basically a doctoral without doing a dissertation so you don't get the degree awarded but, i uh, say yeah yeah and when did you uh what led you to get into teaching initially let's kind of start there i always had an interest in teaching as far back as i can remember rob i was always i i started actually coaching when i was in high school um helping out with youth sports coaching different activities in the high school um, and enjoyed the, the, the teaching and learning process, was intrigued by that um, and had a lot of very positive role models um, throughout my educational career. So that's really what uh, prompted my direction. And you grew up in the, in the Brewer area, right? Went to, yep, went grew to up in Brewer, Brewer. Brewer High School. Yes. And and then on to the University of Maine. And I, and I saw that uh, in I don't know how prevalent it is, but in many cases, I think teachers go to go to college and then go directly into into education, start their career. But you started a little differently, I believe. Well, I also had an interest in business. You know, talk about somebody who couldn't make up his mind. And and that actually started off at a fairly young age where, you know, typical kid, I'm I'm mowing lawns and doing chores and had a paper route and uh worked with the Bangor Daily News, and how did I know you get in trouble? Because I started running, having three different routes, and I subcontracted to two other people and uh, managed my own little entrepreneurial uh, newspaper distribution, and uh, Bangor Daily News said that wasn't okay, and I and I couldn't understand it, but uh, they were getting their money, the papers were getting out, but the, the two people didn't want to do any of the collections, so I did the collections and made the connections that way, and you know, that, that kind of made sense to me. And then uh, as I was going to college, I was working with service merchandise and uh, enjoyed that business aspect of it. That was obviously retail business, but was given opportunities for management even while I was still in college. And uh, actually, day I graduated, they offered me a position um, in their management program, transfer out to Syracuse, New York. And I did not have a teaching uh, assignment lined up, and I figured, you know what, let's try this for a while. So 
I took that position and went out of state for a few years and it was a great decision, provided a wonderful foundation for actually getting into ed leadership. Interesting. And you, you did, uh, you were with a couple other companies. Oh, by, by the way, when you mentioned service merchandise, I, I got thinking back to those of us that have been around the Bangor area and in, in the state of Maine in particular, uh, we remember service merchandise and it morphed into what was the, the one after that? Uh, another, another company. Um, I don't recall service merchandise after I left the company, they, they kind of went out of business a couple of years after that. I don't know exactly who, um, it might've been before service merchandise. There was another name for it was value house. Value house. That's right. That's what it yes. was. Yep. Well, I know the, Outer Broadway. Uh, I know the, the son of the owners, uh, of service merchandise. He used to own a golf course in Southern Maine, but, uh, yep. yeah, that, that name, when I saw that brought me back a few years. <laughs> service merchandise. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of people when I talk to, they'll always say, Oh, I remember that store. And we used to buy all kinds of stuff there. Whatever happened to it? That's right. It was uh, it was you know? a key part of uh, the shopping in the Bangor area. No question about it. But you went on. You also went on to a couple other companies: Alrose Printing and, and Aon Insurance. Tell us about that. Yeah. So um, when I get done with service merchandise, um, I had an opportunity to come back into Maine, and my uncle and aunt owned a printing business in Portland, and uh, they said, "Jim, just come back and." work for us for a while till you, till you get your feet underneath you and figure out what you want to do. So, and that was great because that's a small business, family business, but you know, they were servicing the greater Portland area. A lot of clients there, especially printing and, and making connections that way. It was very, very interesting. And my uncle taught me quite a few little, you know, lessons in, in running a business and his greatest message to me always. And I looked and he kept a, um, picture frame underneath the counter, the front counter with a $10 bill in it. And it said, break in an emergency. And I go, what is that for? And he goes, you need to identify the business that comes through the door that's going to be profitable and where it's better off you handing them $10 and wishing them a good day. Yes. And that, that stuck with me. You know, he didn't have very large margins, so he had to make sure he did good business, quality business, and not businesses that were going to be uh, – ending up costing him time and money. So it's always, that was kind of that, all right, I get it. I understand the lesson here is you have to make good choices, wise decisions, and know what's a good business and know what's bad business. You can't chase all business. So that was a good lesson for me. And then uh, the insurance company was intriguing to me because um, that had to do on a regional level. And it was, it was direct sales and opportunity to uh, move forward with that. And, uh, I enjoyed it, but that really taught me that it was time to, you know, there's something nagging here and I couldn't figure out what it was because I ended up both with service merchandise and with the um, Aon insurance. I ended up training people. I ended up designing training manuals, play scripts, and uh, basically putting together opportunities for people to grow and advance in the company. And, you know, you don't always see it when you live it, but when you're able to reflect back, everything I was doing was leading me into education. Mm -hmm. And even my time with the um, construction um, really helped me in terms of supervising an entire district, plant management, oversight of 
of construction and management that way. So and they all come together, money management, good business, good communication plans, teaching people how to how to perform and lead and then, you know, how to operate a business. So you went to, then you then you decided you took that uh, as you said you you felt the calling and and wanted to get into into uh, the education field. You started out at uh, in Newport. And- yes, yep. I went back and uh, got because I'd been out of it for a while. I had to go back take a couple more courses to renew my certification. Did that and was hired down in Newport um, as a physical education health instructor and supervised uh, four different schools. About one of the things that going into the interview, and I remember talking to Don Hill, who was one of the principals and Ross Spear, the principals that hired me, I told them both that, you know, I'm coming into this with a mindset that I'm moving into administration within five years. Because at that time, state law in Maine required that before you became a school administrator, you have to have at least five successful years of teaching. Mm -hmm. And so my mindset was, okay, I'm going to the plan was we'll do the five years and then we'll start pursuing administrative positions. And then, so then your next, your next step was uh, you, you were the athletic director there. So your first yep. sort of step in, and athletic directors for the purposes of our audience are considered administrative positions. Are they not? Yes, they are. Yep. Yeah. Um, and it was fortunate. So I did that job um, while I still maintained a full-time teaching load. I was also the AD of a class A school. Mm-hmm. So from your experience with athletics and senior dad do it, that's two full-time jobs. Well, quite a load. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, <laughs> and, you know, I was just young enough, foolish enough to say, sure, we can do it. And uh, had a great time. Loved it. Made those relationships and, you know, interacted with the kids and the communities. It was wonderful. And then uh, it, at that point, uh, you started to look, and, and those opportunities started to come about. You were it became your next role was the assistant principal athletic director at uh, Matanaka Junior High. So you're getting yep, into was, the principalship now. Yep. Now we're starting to transition to the principalship, and it was great because that opportunity brought me in contact with some wonderful people. Um, had the privilege of working with Dave T. Herides who was the middle school principal and Dave was an outstanding principal and learned so much with him about organization planning. Um, and again, that clear communication pathway of what people need to know so they can do their job effectively. And uh, I also had a chance to meet uh, Jack Turcott, who was the superintendent of schools there at the time. And, you know, funny story, Rob, that during that interview, I met with Dave and the interview staff at the school and, Obviously, I had done well enough in that interview that I was invited to go down and talk with the superintendent downtown at his office. So I went in and met with Jack, and he's sitting there behind this huge desk. And um, Jack was asking me all kinds of questions, and he got to that typical, so where do you see yourself in 10 years? And I have no idea why I did it. It just seemed right at the time. And I, uh, I stood up, and I went around his desk, and I asked him, could you stand up for a second? okay, Jim, sure. And he stood up. I sat down in his chair and I go, this is a pretty good spot to be in 10 years. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) And I have no idea why I did that. And he blustered and huffed and puffed a little bit, told me to get the hell out of his chair, go sit down (laughs) over where I belong. And um, he ended up hiring me and, uh, and it was been great. And Jack's been a wonderful friend and mentor for me 
since then, since that day. And, and, and legitimately I told him my goal was ultimately be a superintendent. Um, and that was developed because I realized if, if you want to make an impact, teachers make impact in lives every day. There's no doubt about that. But if you want to make an impact on a larger organization an impact on communities, you have more of an opportunity to do so out of the chair of a superintendency. And ultimately that's what I wanted to be able to do. Well, and that, uh, and, and that, that actually happened, uh, up there. You had a number of couple, a uh, couple other positions as principal in the, in the Lincoln area. And then you had an opportunity to be an interim superintendent up there at yep. one point. Yep. And so got your feet wet there. Yep. And that's where I ran into Omar Norton and Omar is a, a veteran Maine educator. He's passed away now, but Omar is a down East boy from, uh, I believe Eastport, Maine, and uh, related to the Greenlaw family, Dick Greenlaw, Art Greenlaw, some names that you would recognize if you're involved mm-hmm. in education and athletics in the state of Maine. And uh, Omer, who at one point in time was principal, superintendent, he was deputy commissioner of the state of Maine, he was state legislator. And he, he did a lot of interims and he did a lot of searches for communities for superintendency. And we got to meet each other up in Lincoln and uh, developed a very good working relationship. And, and uh, his comment to me was, Jim, I don't know why they hired me. You're, you're running the district and you ought to just do it full time. Interesting. And, uh, yeah. And so opportunities arose um, for an opening and uh, Omer in his typical way, he would, uh, he would call and he would sow some seeds with people and see if they throw their, hat in the ring for consideration, which I did down into Union 92, which is the small school system. So there are eight towns, six schools around Ellsworth. And uh, I was fortunate enough to be hired there. Yeah, that's, uh, that was Eastbrook, Hancock, LeMoyne, Mariahville, Otis, Surrey, Trenton, and Waltham. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> yep. Surrounded Ellsworth, Sur- all the towns. Right, right. And then you – and then you uh, – the opening came about in in Bucksport in two thousand eight, and you yep. uh, you jumped on it. Well, I didn't have much of a choice because at the at the time, um, literally two weeks after um, we had sold our house up in the Lincoln area and moved down here and bought a house and you know starting a whole new world, and then the um, the governor announces that we're going to get rid of all superintendents. And we're going to do consolidation. And with the ultimate goal is they wanted to get down to basically county superintendents. And going through that process, there was quite a bit of instability. And uh, with the opportunity to move over here to a district that was planning on consolidating, um, offered an opportunity for some stability. Not to mention the fact that, you know, and you talk leadership, I think one of the key important factors for anybody in a leadership role is you have to make sure you know you're moving to an organization where your skills, your personality, um, and your background will fit and be a good fit for, for that entity. And with this opening over here in RSU 25, I couldn't have find a, found a better fit. And I was very excited for the opportunity over here. It, it, that's a great segue into just a, a topic that I mentioned uh, previously was that the whole the whole issue around that's become I know it was a political football at times for 
different folks, but can you just touch on your thoughts as you get ready to retire about this whole idea that we have too many superintendents or not enough or not structured right? Uh, I know that's kind of a yeah. loaded question, but I'd love yep. to hear your thoughts. Well, I, I, I'm not shy from one with an opinion, so I'll, I'll be happy to share it with you. The um, the idea has merit when you stand separate from the communities and just look at something in a purely you know, intellectual way. You can say, well, if we can um, streamline leadership, we'll be able to be more effective and more efficient. Um, intellectually, that makes sense. But given the structures in the state of Maine and the way Maine law is written, Maine is a local control um, entity. Maine has had education as a primary function in its state before many states were even formed. Um, a lot of your states that are based on a county system didn't exist when Maine established its educational programming and system. So you got to look at the history of that and the independence of the Maine communities. And that's written right into the, the state of Maine constitution. Um, when it comes to the overall practicality of that, you're not going to save any money, nor will you save efficiencies in many ways because of the local control. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I think there are opportunities for consolidation. I'm, I believe in consolidation. I've looked in, and done a lot of work in the history of education in Maine and look at the SAD movement, which happened in the in the 60s, late 60s. And that was a consolidation. There's been consolidation in Maine since it started education in the 1800s. Now, we had a lot of one-room schoolhouses in every little town and every little neighborhood. And then they'd be moving into, you know, municipal school districts and then regional school districts, so on and so forth. Um, but as we look at it on a whole, you have 97 superintendents in the state of Maine. If you were down to... Just 16, one for every county. How many assistant superintendents would you have? Mm -hmm. Layers right. and layers. So I don't think you're going to gain anything with efficiency. You just got to add a different layer set. And then you're going to change your governmental authority, which in the state of Maine, if you want to take authority away from a community, that will be an interesting conversation. So... Certainly. That's Long story short, I think the way the state of Maine is structured, I think it's an intellectual conversation that's not a practical reality. It looks good on paper, but uh, in, in trying to execute it, it's a whole different story. That's a great a I appreciate, story. I appreciate yep. your thoughts and your candor with that one. And, and you, again, that leads to another sort of segue into the, my next question is, you had some time in business, and I know you and I have talked in the past about a quasi-business approach to how you – uh, you you take your role as a superintendent and apply that. Uh, can you talk a little bit about business and educational administration? Uh, can they coexist? Uh, all of those sorts of things. I, I don't think they can exist without each other. Education in and of itself is a business. It's a multi-billion dollar business across the country. And you can look at accusations, accusations just recently of what's going on out there. And that's a whole other topic for a different podcast if you want to get into it. Um, but I think from my perspective, to be effective, education needs to be able to wear both hats of educational leadership and business leadership. And decisions can't be mutually exclusive. Um, we are a resource-based um, service. 
And because of that, I mean, we live at the public trough. It's taxpayer money. So we have to be very, very cognizant of, you know, what is it we need? What resources do we need? What resources would be most effectively used and most efficiently used? What can we do? Can we? And and one of the things that I always put in front of my administrators is, before you ask for anything, is there something that we can do without? We just can't keep adding. What do you adjust? Can we look at things differently? So, in business, if you if you want to you know, add something to your business, you have to make sure that you're not duplicating a service. You have to make sure you have the resources to support it. You have to make sure that that those resources are going to be there long term, not just a short term. An example of that is grants. A lot of times we receive grants that are one-time awards of money, which is all great and can be wonderful for CEDAR programs or to do a different way of approaching something, but we have to look beyond the life of that grant and say, all right, where are we going to be? What is the plan at the end of this grant? Mm -hmm. How does this play out? And know that before you, so you have an exit strategy before you enter. And it's, I think it's real, real important. And to me, that's one of the things I took away from business is how do you use your resources efficiently and to the highest, most effective needs? How do you use your personnel the same way? Highest, highest, most important investment we make is in the personnel we hire. So how do we get good quality people and retain them, support them and train them so they can be most effective and get the greatest value out of the investment? Oh, that's a great, great response. And, you know, it's, it comes down, how are you going to pay for it in the longer term yeah. in, in whatever yeah. form or fashion that is in business? Obviously, yeah. it's, you know, how are we going to pay for that investment uh, or, or some other resource that we need? What what do you see, and you may have touched on this in in the last question a little bit, but uh, maybe uh, go a little bit deeper in terms of what are the differences in leading in the area of education as compared to other types of organizations? Um, I don't know if there's differences or similarities. There are a lot of similarities in terms of you, you, you need to know what your product is. You need to know what you're doing. Um, you need to know what the needs are for the, for your customers. And I often refer to, you know, and when I talk to people all the time, I say we, we deal in the two most valued possessions any human being would have. That's their children and their money. And we have to be always, always cognizant of that, that we're providing the highest, greatest service we can with the greatest value for that. So similarity is the fact that you have to have a mission, you have to have a vision, and you have to have a plan to execute to achieve the vision. And then you have to go back on a periodic basis and you have to analyze how are we doing. And you're never going to be perfect. You're going to have some wins. You're going to have some areas that you're going to have opportunity for growth and adjustment. And you're honest about that and you make those shifts. And that's ongoing and it continues. To me, that's not much different than a business because in business, you, you offer a product, you offer a service that's going to have to change and adapt over time um, because if you're stale and stagnant, very few businesses will, will continue and be successful if you're not revisiting that and, and revisiting what you're offering or expanding your offerings. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and when you, when you think about, and I, you mentioned dealing with taxpayers 
money. You have to deal with school boards, town councils, and I guess in business, if you're big enough, you, you're dealing with board of directors and those sorts of things as well. Does the, the uncertain nature at times of your funding sources cause you challenges or has it caused you challenges as a leader in education? It does. It does because it makes it harder to continue to work towards that towards that vision of what you're trying to achieve. And that causes the mid, mid-course corrections as you move forward. And sometimes it's a step backwards before you can take two forward. Sometimes you have to retract a little bit, regroup, and move forward again. It's never a straight, smooth pathway. And having resources, that can be questioned at times. And, you know, it depends on, you know, what happens and what's appropriate at the legislative level. What gets approved, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> quite a challenge. And if you remember when we looked at uh, the closing of the Verso Mill here in Bucksport, we were losing a significant portion of taxpayer funds, and which really it, it tied directly into about $2.1 million for the school system, mm-hmm. which was significant. That was uh, at that time, we were just under a $15 million budget. Take out $2 million, that's a big portion of that. And um, you don't make that up entirely on the shoulders of just raising more taxes. We, at that time, we had to retract and we reduced our budget by $1.1 million. We were fortunate enough to have some retirements at that time, fortunate enough to have some positions that were vacant that we could eliminate. Um, But ultimately, we did have to eliminate positions and people. Um, But at the same time, We had the support from the town council not to destroy our programming because they recognize the value of education. The importance of education is to economic development. And so they were willing to provide a bridge for one year while we got the um, sudden and severe um, recalculation of our general purpose aid from the state of Maine. That's right. I I remember that that piece of it. Uh, I think I, I may have been on the council at that time. Uh, yeah, I think you were. I, help, I believe him. The, yeah. you know, and all of these things we're talking about, you know, what I wanted to also dig into is your, your thoughts about one, how you describe yourself as a leader, but kind of combine that into what you consider, particularly in, in the role of educational administration, the most important characteristics or traits for leaders. In, uh, I've got my own thoughts and I just would love to hear what you have uh, to say about that. Now, it, I always get a chuckle out of when people ask you and you'll have interviews, the question would be is what type of leader are you, right? And people want to characterize you in a particular style of leadership. Mm-hmm. And I've always believed that, you know, you may be a certain personality, which may lead to one style or another. I think successful leaders are adaptable and they're going to use situations to determine what leadership's needed. I mean, there are times when you're going to need direct leadership, very specific this is what you're going to do, execute. Other times you're going to have to be um, very willing to listen, willing to be participatory, step back a little bit, let others take a lead. Um, When it comes to education, I think it's really, really important that you're really in a position where you're working closely with the entities, like in this situation with our municipalities and work closely with them to develop um, an understanding of each other, understanding the needs of each other, and how can we support each other? 
and really leveraging those relationships to develop collaborations. Um, because it doesn't matter what entity you represent. There's only one dollar raised in taxes that has to be shared, right? We only have, that's it. You have one pool of money that's raised. A portion goes to the municipal spending, portion goes to educational spending and, and whatever other troughs there are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Excuse me. So what can we do to take that and stretch that to the greatest extent possible? And that's where the collaborations and efficiencies come into play. And that goes back to our previous conversation when I talked about consolidation is, you know, a organizational restructuring is not necessarily needed to create efficiencies, but the establishment of collaborations as legal entities is is actually a higher leverage point that people are more comfortable with and more willing to participate in. What I was going to say was situational leadership is is a strong part of my belief uh, in terms of traits or the ability to recognize situations and adapt, as you said. You you nailed that one for me, Jim. Thank you. (laughs) That's exactly where I was going. And and I think the other – you mentioned some other core competencies that I think are so important, the ability to collaborate and the ability to communicate, visibility – uh, being visible at in in the various towns that you're around, and, and I know you've done a great job. Anytime you've been with the council and and at different events, you're always visible, and uh, those are certainly competencies that are critical. And, and not everybody has. I mean, I think that uh, that determines basically success or or failure in some of these roles. If people can't either develop those competencies or don't have them. Well, and I think sometimes people fear feedback mm-hmm. and and nobody wants to hear feedback that's not positive. But, you know, we, a mutual friend of ours, David Burgess, is always quoted as saying all feedback is a gift. And I think he's he's right on the mark with that, because, you know, even people making critical comment are doing so. If you listen to that critical comment, that's that's telling you something. That's telling you that they're concerned about something or you're not valuing something they do to the same level or there there may be a legitimate concern that you have to really take a look at. So you just like, you know, you think about times as a player, you know, some of the coaches I had, they provided feedback on a regular basis. And, you know, I, I finally figured out after a few years that. The more I responded to that feedback, the better I performed and the better, the, the fewer times they would provide me the feedback. And, you know, so being out there listening, 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 and then seeing where the commonalities and building from the commonalities and moving forward. Well, and, I, and I think just, not being, not being thin skinned, uh, because you're, you're no shortage of avenues for feedback with public service, right. whether, right. whether it's education or government or whatever public service <laughs> you're in. Uh, that's yeah. one of the, the, the great things about our democracy is people have the, the right to uh, provide that feedback. <laughs> yeah, and absolutely. And, and we need to listen. That's right. That's and, right. And, and listening doesn't mean sitting there and, and not hearing, but listening means hearing what they're saying. And whether there's emotion in their voice or or not, get the content. What are they trying to say? What's the message they're trying to deliver? And and really applying that to your situation so you can, you know, make better decisions and adjust make adjustments as needed. 
Along these lines, what what has been the most challenging, if you can pinpoint one, one, and I was going to talk about COVID, and I don't know if that fits in the most challenging thing for you in your in your career as a leader in education. Uh, is there one thing that stands out most challenging um, probably, thing for you? Oh, boy. Um, I think the most consistent, highest challenge is – finding the right people and putting the right people in place to meet the needs of our students. Um, always the talent search. And I don't think this is any different than any business situation. No, you know, you, you hire high quality people, you provide them training, you give them direction, and then you get the heck out of their way and then support them as they need it. And I think that is the ongoing challenge and different times, gives us different, I don't know, different ways to look at that same challenge. Mm. Um, right now, we have very few people going into education um, the, on a larger geopolitical for our, for our country. People have done a good job of um, downgrading public education and saying how horrible it is. Public education is not horrible. It performs very well and actually better than most other structures that are out there. But it's it seems like it's it's a fun thing to go after. And again, I go back to the business of education. It's a multi-billion-dollar business, so private entities want more and more of that, mm-hmm. and they want to take that away from the government. Um, and what the right answer is, I can't tell you. I think it's a little bit of everything. Um, so we have to be very, very um, diligent on recruiting people, and we're really doing. And one thing we've done in this district before a lot of others did is is re- recruit and train our own. So we, we identify talent. Um, somebody may come in as a, um, an educational technician and we provide them the professional development so they can work their way to earning a, a teaching certificate. And that's an investment of people that pays off in the long run. It's not instant fix, but it takes time. We even look to identify talent as they go up through the high school. Every year we have quite a few kids that want to look at education as a profession. So we make sure we support them in that endeavor and we stay in touch with them and we keep reminding them they're welcome to come home, you know, and, and bringing people back that way. Finding people who are looking for different a change in their career and supporting them in that transition. We've identified people and brought them in and been successful with it. Um, it's not perfect. We haven't, we haven't hit a bat at a thousand yet, but our, our numbers are very, very solid of getting good quality people. And it's through talent search and it's finding people, it's having conversations and, and listening to them and, and seeing if you're a fit for them to come in and be part of your organization. And and that's uh, one of the challenges I would assume has to be also the funding that you have to pay the, you know, the salaries that are, are going to attract the best compared right. to a town next door or, or what have you. Yep. Yeah. And we're in a situation where we're in the middle of three um, economic service centers and we have a hard time competing with those service centers in terms of salary. Mm-hmm. Um, we've gotten better over the years. There's been a great commitment by the school board and supported by the communities to get those uh, salaries up where they can be competitive. But again, there are people who can leave here and, and, and move over and make, you know, five to $10,000 more per year, and which leads to a big challenge here. And we've talked about on an economic development, Rob, is housing. Mm-hmm. 
when I don't have places for young teachers and young couples to come and settle and be a part of the community, they have to live in one of these other places. Well, if I can start off and live in Bangor and it's only a 25 minute commute to Bucksport, that's not a big deal. But five years down the road, all of a sudden I can get a job in Bangor and make $10,000 more and I got a place to live. That's pretty good. And and also yeah. the uh, the two-parent income. Right, know, exactly. That piece of it as well. You're, you're exactly right. So, I mean, this is a wonderful place to live and raise a family. We need to have a housing stock or apartments where people have the opportunity to move here. Right. Yeah, which is a challenge, you know, so. Well, speaking of challenges, let's just touch a little bit on uh, COVID. I, th- I thought you did a tremendous job at the school system with COVID. It was uh, just unprecedented challenges for school systems all over the country. We all know, and I'm not going to get into the political parts of this whole thing, but tell us a little bit about uh, your response and, and how you felt about it. Well, it, we've heard, we got rumblings of this about, it was mid-February, and it was in mid-March when all of a sudden our world got turned upside down. Um, but the rumblings really didn't lead to much for it to help us get prepared. So we really had to react um, immediately. Um, and we did so with the whole idea of was we're going to be as safe as we possibly can be, but we're going to maintain connections with our, with our students and with our families as closely as we can, given the structures we had to deal with established by both the federal and the state governments. And so that's how we focused on it all um, and then really took a common sense approach to, okay, if we have to live by these requirements, here they are. And, uh, you know, respected people had different opinions and uh, certainly respected those, but we also shared with them the constraints we had to deal with and, and did everything we could to avoid the political fight. That's not our role. And, you know, we all have our personal opinions, but still I have to live within a set of rules, whether I like them or not. And, and that's what we did. And we were able to, and we did have um, a lot of money that came into the district from the federal government. And we took advantage of that in terms of creating opportunities to connect with kids and families. So we were able to establish, we could do full remote education. Um, and again, I'll, I'll go on the record multiple times that is never as good as in person mm-hmm. uh, because you don't have that opportunity to really make those bonds and relationships. But we did have it in place. We were able to set up structures so we could keep our youngest kids, elementary students in person on a daily basis. We did rotating schedules at the high school. So we got kids in there at least half the time at high school and middle school. And then we were able to slowly get into every day, which we we sorely needed. And we're never going to get that time back across the country. Um, Kiddos lost anywhere from four to six months of the educational process. And and that can be quite a bit depending on what stage they were at, mm-hmm. especially the kids at the younger levels where it's so important. Um, and it's just a matter of staying on top of that. And we also tried to, every crisis creates opportunities. And so with this money, what can we do to leverage the educational opportunities and educational environment? And we saw a couple of, besides the remote and connecting with technology and upgrading to one-to-one all the way across the pre-K through 12 spectrum for us, 
Um, we saw our opportunities in terms of healthy environment. We have a Jewett school that's, oh goodness, that's over 70 years old now, did not have a heating and ventilation system integrated. So we were able to use funds from the federal government, and we just completed and put online this fall a complete heating and ventilation system. So we have plenty of fresh air being brought into the school. It's a healthier environment. And even when we took the facilities committee around this fall, comments were made as how much cleaner and fresher the air felt in that school compared to years prior. Mm. And we also looked at a situation. We were in a situation with contract busing. And uh, and that's here's, here's where the business sense came out. We're looking at a 32% increase in a bus contract in the next five-year issuance of that contract. And that's an amazing increase, you know, a 33% increase mm-hmm. and um, a significant portion of our school budget. We are required to transport. It's in law. If you're a regional school unit, you must transport students. So we don't have a choice. And taking a look at that, and we didn't have any other potential bids, and we were able to work with the state government um, and got approved for um, 100% reimbursement for a number of buses, and then we were able to use some of the federal money to buy the rest of the fleet we needed. Um, So we were able to completely go from contract busing to our own busing, and then we set up going back to another theme, an educational collaborative where we partnered with the Orrington School System, the Hancock and Lemoyne School System, and now the Dedham School System has joined us to share a bus garage, a a director of transportation, a dispatcher, and two mechanics, a shared expense by those five entities. Um, So we're actually operating um, below what our contract price was five years ago. Interesting. That's that's Outstanding. That is, uh, I, and I had read something about that. So, so the RSU owns a fleet of buses, yes. And then, as you said, partners with these other collaborates with these other communities to to administer that whole that whole operation. Right. Yep. Interesting. Oh, that's a yep. that's a great example. Have have other uh, RSUs or districts around the state taken on that same approach? Or, are you aware of anything? Um, uh, they, there's others that are doing it. We also work with, we've had a partnership for years with uh, Spruce, which is a Southern Penobscot regional entity for children with exceptionalities, where we have a, um, the um, there's a school in Bangor that's shared with these 26 school districts um, that service the needs of some very high needs children. And we're able to share the cost of doing that. And that too is an educational collaborative. And that's something fairly new in law. That just came out a few years ago um, as kind of an answer to a, not a full consolidation, but what else can we do to consolidate and make efficiencies? And um, we have PrEP, which is a Penobscot Regional Educational Partnership, which many of the same schools that are in Spruce are members of, and that's for professional development. And so we're in the process right now of working with um, all entities of and taking that collaboration and enriching it by bringing those two entities together. And again, it's a way for regional schools to work together for shared services, shared needs in the most efficient and effective manner we can. And um, that's been an ongoing effort and uh, hopefully we'll start to bear fruit in the next year. Those are all just uh, just really creative, entrepreneurial uh, initiatives that I, you know, I think people – 
hopefully we're publicizing those. I'm sure you have. Um, people need to know that that sort of stuff is going on, that our taxpayer dollars are being used efficiently and effectively. And, you know, these are some of the results. It's yeah. great to hear that. And that's where I, I really think that that business experience has really helped me. Mm-hmm. When you can when you can look at things and say, okay, is there a way we could do this to either keep the same effectiveness or ideally improve our effectiveness while improving efficiencies? And I just think in any entity you manage, whether it's a private business or it's a state agency or a school system, you should be looking at things with that lens. Just because we've done things a certain way for many years, which may have served us well, is that still the best way to do it? You know, and I think it, part of uh, when we talk about leadership as well, Jim, and, and I know you feel this way because I can see it on your resume, a lot of the the things that leaders do, they also involve being part of associations and committees and coalitions yep. and those sorts of things where ideas like we're talking about can be shared, brought brought together, uh, creative solutions uh, discussed, all those sorts of things. I just want to highlight a couple of the things for our our audience. You've been involved with the Maine School Superintendents Association for many, many years. You've been a president in a number of other roles there. You've been on the Hancock County Superintendents Association, where you've been president there, School Management Association, where you've been the chair of a, a property and casualty trust You've been with the New England Association of School Superintendents, the Bucksport Bay Healthy Communities Coalition, the Bucksport Economic Development Committee, and currently also the Down East YMCA Board of Directors. So you're, you're that networking piece. I, I would guess is in my mind, it's definitely one of the core competencies: the ability to network and, and do those sorts of things. You want to touch on that a little bit for us? What that's meant oh, to you? Ab- oh, absolutely. I think that's one of the most critical things you can do as a leader. You can't lead in isolation. And by putting yourself out there and connecting with other people, building relationships, I think building relationships is a bedrock component to leadership. And through those relationships, you have so many opportunities to leverage other people's learnings, other people's experiences. Um, You can develop partnerships. You can take a look at situations. Um, and I'm going to point out the property and casualty trust. That was started um, because the insurance business as a whole were pulling out of the, the field of education, didn't want to insure school systems. And so that was started by a group of superintendents over 40 years ago. And that trust today still serves um, schools if they want to purchase their insurance products through the trust in a manner that is designed for schools specifically and not just the, the open market and being insured by companies that may or may not want to take advantage of that opportunity. Because this is it's designed to serve schools, we're taking a look at school needs and we're able to adapt to the changing environment fairly quickly. One example is cybersecurity. Schools are technology rich we're exposed to the World Wide Web. Um, we are constantly bombarded by people trying to hack into our systems. And if we don't have proper training, proper structures in place, and proper insurance, we're going to expose our communities to significant losses. So working together by, and that trust covers about 60% of the school systems in the state of Maine, we're, we're able to bring products that are brand new and not offered by commercial 
brokerages. That in um, itself is, is one of the, the most critical. We deal with that every day, as you can imagine, in the banking world. Every day, trying to, somebody's trying to scam or, or are scamming people, hacking, trying to hack, trying to fish all through our systems. And, and it is, uh, and that's, that's an, another creative, uh, creative product there uh, with, with the trust. So, uh, yeah. Kudos and that's again, that. look, and that's where we take a look at that and we leverage that and we, you know, and, and that's all because you sit around and talk to people who are in the tech world and have that opportunity for those conversations. And you're saying, wow, if that's happening there, what, what does it mean for us? Mm-hmm. And, and how do we design products for people that are going to make a difference in, the, in, in their entity and help them and serve them? So it, it's been, it's been interesting. I mean, I've learned a lot. So again, from working with Aon Insurance Company, now I'm sitting on a trust. Some of that, you know, I was a licensed insurance agent. Um, I trained people to take the insurance test. That gave me a little bit of exposure. Obviously, that's a huge market, a huge field. So I'm not going to claim all the knowledge I needed to, but it was enough to know that, okay, now sitting on the trust, I know some of the questions I need to ask and, and some of the things that we can do, which has been helpful. Well, it's it's interesting, and you're not quite as old as I am. But as we both look back in our in our careers, you you think about those experiences you had, and and how one in one way or another they've affected it. It has some positive effect in most cases of things we've we've encountered along the way. And you know, my advice to young people is is be careful. Don't turn down opportunities. Look at opportunities, and it may not be something that you can see right now, but down the road, it may come back and, and benefit you. Yeah. And I, and I always say, you know, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up, but I'm enjoying the trip right now. So. <laughs> exactly. Well, let me give you a second or two to brag about yourself. If I, uh, and, and I could read through some, I know some of the things, uh, the great things you've, you've uh, done in Bucksport. What are you most proud of in your, in your, in your long and successful career? Can you pinpoint one or two things that really stick out? Yeah, I, I, I can. Um, it's those relationships. It's being able to, you know, have difficult discussions with people. Um, but in the end, you know, it's out of mutual respect. And you may agree or disagree, but it's okay because personally you're still, you're in a good place. Um, I'm. To me, what was always important was, you know, providing um, a service for, for, for kids and, and having those opportunities when I see students, you know, that I had in school 30 some odd years ago, and they come up and they talk to me about, you know, they remember me as their teacher and they enjoyed my class or they played ball for me when I was coaching and how they're actually taking a lot of things I taught them and they're using it with their kids as they volunteer as a little league coach or a Pop Warner coach or what have you. Um, I think it's just being able to have impact on people in a positive way. And uh, I think that's what I'm going to carry away from, from that and the relationships that I've had the opportunity to, to, to build and nurture. And I, I think that's what I'm most proud of. And just being able to, when I, you know, to say, okay, I did, I did my job. I did it to the best of my ability. Um, the entities that I've worked were in a better place than when I came there. And, and I'm certain that you will have uh, a lot of people coming back over the years and, and thank, 
thanking you. A lot of those students that you touched and and uh, and teachers as well. Well, what's what's next for you, Jim? You're you're too young to completely <laughs> retire, right? Oh, oh I know. No, uh, <laughs> my my chief financial officer, also known as my wife, has already informed me that you know a full leisurely retirement is not on my horizon. So um, I don't know what it's going to be yet. I mean, I've got enough. Um, varied interests, varied backgrounds that I, I I want to work. I want to slow down a little bit. I think being on you know twenty four hours a day, seven days a week, is uh, a little much right now. But mm-hmm. uh, um, I'm definitely going to look for an opportunity that's going to allow me to continue to, you know, build off what I've had experience doing, share that with people. Um, again, I'm a teacher at heart. Mentoring new superintendents is something I enjoy very, very much, helping them, you know, you're never going to give somebody the answer because every every situation needs a specific answer, not what you've had before. It's not cookie cutter, but I can at least help coach them a little bit of what are the questions they need to be asking and helping them. Because when you're in the middle of the fray, you don't always have the ability to slow it down and, and have a calm, rational approach and being somebody there that can help add that to them for their need is, is something I would look forward to doing. And so, you know, it may be doing some teaching. It may be doing, you know, some work um, with an educational service center, helping that develop and mature. Uh, who knows? It could be driving buses. I am a certified bus driver. So, <laughs> Well, I, I talked to Jason Grindle, my, my neighbor, but how you know Jason, I'm sure. Yeah, oh, yeah. And he yeah. absolutely loves it. He's, He's a happy man. <laughs> yes, and I know Ralph Jewett loved it, too. So, Oh, God. And you want to talk about somebody who's a wonderful, wonderful mentor. And just, you know, I got, to, I got here in Bucksport at the right time, I think, because I was still able to make connections with you know, Ralph Jewett, still make connections with your dad and and a number of other people who are just Jeff Robinson and all these people who are, you know, bedrock community members and, uh, you know, getting to know them and, and get a chance to work with them and, and it helped me understand the values and beliefs of a community. And well, I know, helped me. I know dad thinks the, uh, thinks the, uh, the, just the world of you and uh you used to talk about the the, the mcdonald's coffee uh, oh. sessions down there <laughs> uh, but uh yeah the two it, ralph was just just a just wonderful wonderful i'm glad you had an opportunity to connect with him when you first came on board for sure you used to have to write notes for him saying where he was so he didn't get in trouble with his exactly yeah <laughs> this is fun well, look, Jim. Thank you so much for taking the time to to talk with me today. You've uh, you've had a great career, and you know, thank you for your service to Bucksport. Uh, you've been here for fifteen plus years, and and uh, I hope your last year is is successful and enjoyable and not too stressful. And I look forward to talking with you when you uh, come out at the other the other end of this. <laughs> well, I appreciate and thanks for reaching out to me. Um, anytime you like to talk, I'm, I'm more than happy to talk about this well, we, leadership and yeah, everything. It's important. We can certainly explore. I'd love to explore another topic around this, uh, sometime in the near future. Okay, Rob. Well, Great. thank you so much. Right. This Appreciate is, time. This is Rob Carmichael with Mainly Matters. I'll be back with an upper, another episode soon. I hope you'll join us then. Thank you. Thank you.